Hello and welcome to another episode of the Horse Sport Ireland podcast. I'm John Kyle and each episode we'll be bringing you interviews with equestrian experts. I'm delighted to say that the podcast, including episode one discussing COVID-19 with CEO Ronan Murphy, is now available on iTunes, Spotify and Google Podcasts, so you can subscribe and listen alongside your other favourite shows. Since that first episode, it's been heartening to see the recommencement of sport horse activity across Ireland, in particular riding schools and centres, and how well the COVID-19 policies and guidelines are being adhered to. Lots of the high-performance and youth teams have been conducting virtual training, and some of these have turned into excellent social media pieces. And we're delighted that the efforts of Michael Blake and the high-performance jumper riders with their training tips series has been recognised with an Irish Field Gain Star of the Month nomination. Keep an eye on HSI social media for these and more, including the Gain Ask the Experts nutrition series. Our focus this time, though, is on breeding, and in particular, its veterinary aspects. And we're lucky enough to be speaking with Hugh Suffren. Hugh, welcome along. Thank you very much for joining us. First of all, maybe tell me, what's your official title with Horsesport Ireland? I'm the, the veterinary consultant for Horsesport Ireland breeding programme. And that role then, Hugh, is that a lot of time on the road? Is it a very practical hands-on or is it more of an advisory capacity? So it's very much advisory. I do the stallion inspections every March when the, the new intake of young horses are assessed. After that, if there are any appeals and issues with the vetting of stallions, I adjudicate on those and Thereafter, it's a, it's a kind of a, a year-round advisory role at the end of telephone and occasional meetings on change of policy or with specific issues with specific horses. Hugh, Horsesport Ireland has this unique dual role with the High Performance Equestrian Federation and the breeding aspect and the fact that it has a foot in two different territories with Northern and Southern Ireland. Clearly, you're from Northern Ireland. Do you find any administrative frictions between the two jurisdictions? No, it's very cohesive. There's an all-Ireland policy. Most horses that are born and bred on the island of Ireland are registered with an Irish stud book uh, and generally with Horse Board Ireland, with the Irish Horse Board. And there is an office actually in Northern Ireland to deal with these registrations. In the horse world, Ireland has always been looked upon as one island, as one entity, whether it be in actual competition and sport or whether it be in the breeding industry. And Hugh, let's find out a little bit about you. I mean, I know you've ridden to the top level. You were our team vet for eventing for a long time. But how did it all start with horses? Uh, my history is I joined the local pony club and got a great grounding and education there, moved through, got into eventing, was lucky enough to ride some lovely horses. I rode Madrigal for Jean Mitchell who went all the way from kind of pre-novice right through to Punchestown in those days and then on to badminton. Hugh, I'm maybe not alone in having recently seen again that picture of you jumping into the lake at badminton with no hands on the reins. <laughs> well, luckily, a few fences further on, the mare had more brains than I had. At least somebody that was using their brains, otherwise we'd both be dead. Yeah, I'm a great believer in, uh, particularly in eventing with a horse. You have to have a horse that you can trust to make decisions as it goes around the cross country, for sure. But getting to that level, getting to badminton, didn't necessarily for you turn into riding yourself at major championships. 
after badminton, I had to kind of return to my studies a little bit and uh, get the head down and try and pass a few exams. And then following that, I started to ride for Bill Buller. And she obviously he had a lot of very top quality young horses and had a lot of fun bringing them on. But that was a different kind of a setup. He was producing them to sell. So we would bring them up through the grades and then they would, they would be sold on. But, but eventing really was, was my sport. I didn't really do very much show jumping. And uh, I dabbled at point-appointing for one season and ignominiously. And yeah, sure, veterinary took over then and I got absorbed in that, really. Yeah, absorbed indeed to the extent of becoming the high-performance veterinary surgeon for the Irish eventing team. I became team vet probably younger than I really was entitled to be and it was, in those days the sport of eventing was uh, it was a very much a community sport everyone helped everyone else if it was raining and the, the field was muddy somebody pulled you out of the field or whatever happened or give you a hand so tending the events as a vet was just my way of paying a little bit of that back but sure it was mighty crack and I was able to travel to some fantastic places and saw a lot of things that, but like everything else it kind of ran its course a little bit and I stood down for about 13 years and then poor Weg in Normandy Marcus stood down for a year or two and I took it up again then and, and did Normandy Blair Castle Rio great great to be associated with the sport in, in that way and Hugh we're going to talk much younger horses in the production of them as we go on to speak about breeding but from your high performance veterinary experience just tell us a little bit about some of the aspects that people need to consider with our top level high performance horses. It's interesting how things have changed at the top level 20-30 years ago a lot of the veterinary issues were things like strained tendons, strained ligaments, strained suspensories, things like that. The modern sport horse is so well produced and so schooled and prepared to the highest level that repetitive strain injuries are the big thing that we see nowadays. And the repetitive strain injuries, whether it be in the foot, in the fetlocks, in the hocks, in the high suspensories, in the horse's back, but it's just because of the relentless number of hours that are spent training and working the horse, flat work, circles, lateral work, and very often it's all done on the same surface. Someone pays money to put in a, a lovely state-of-the-art surface and thereafter just continues to work their horses on that surface. And whether it be the local riding school or right up to the top-class international performers, there is a theme that runs through that this repetitive work, particularly on the same surface, is causing a lot of these problems. I mean, I doubt you're proposing that we school and train our horses less at the very top level. So what's your solution? Yeah, my solution to it is, is very simple. You vary the work. You vary the workload. You, you flat work. You go hacking. You do forest hacks. You go to the beach and work on the beach. You do canter work. You vary your surfaces. And it's interesting that, particularly in eventing, I know one competitor in particular who, whose horses at the very top badminton-type horses, international horses, kept breaking. They, they kept getting to the stage of being produced for the top-class competition and just didn't seem to last the course. And this person completely revamped their training program, 
and introduced maybe one to two sessions of, of focused quality flat work per week and spent most of the rest of the time luring the horses off to the local forest park or doing long hacks or canter work and they have been inordinately successful in the past few years with that strategy. Hugh, the Irish Sport Horse Stallion inspections, maybe you could just talk us a little bit through the process and of course the veterinary aspects of these inspections. Okay, so for the stallion inspections, one component of approving the stallions with the Irish Horse Board is the the veterinary aspect, the veterinary examination and a set of x-rays. The idea of this particular examination is to filter out or avoid approving horses that have conditions that have a hereditary component to them. And I can go through those in a minute. The other part of the examination, obviously, is if a horse is going through the inspection process and it's lame, it's difficult to assess it for its movement or its jump if it's lame. And in fact, from a humane point of view, that animal cannot be produced to to go through the, the rest of the inspection. So lameness at the value uh, inspection, even if it was due to a well-known injury and the animal is an absolutely brilliant performer, it cannot go through the, the process of, of being assessed with an injury. It's rare that that happens. Let's get back to kind of really what the, the veterinary examination is about. So we're there to try and filter out things that carry hereditary component. And things like that are, well, I've talked already about uh, laryngeal neuropathies, so wind problems. OCDs have a degree of heritability. Bone cysts, try and filter out. Ring bones, side bones, bone spavins, unequally sized feet navicular problems. Actually, bad naviculars is one of the main things that the stallion inspections have focused on from their inception. And I think it's probably worth looking at the success there has been in Ireland. You know, I, I remember when I graduated first, navicular problems with problems were quite a common reason for an animal to, to go out of work and they were quite a, a common reason for animals to fail at vettings. And you know, they have become less and less of an issue over the years. You know, you rarely see really bad navicular x-rays anymore. So I think that's been that's one little example of the success of the uh, the screening process. Other things, obviously, like shiverers, string halts, wobblers, uh, aren't looked upon very fondly, quite rightly. Anything that would be deemed to have a hereditary component to it. Of course, it's under continuous development, but how long, in essence, have these stallion inspections been conducted in this fashion, in this format? The list that I work off was first put together in 1995, which is 25 years ago. There's a panel meet every, usually every two or three years to discuss current thinking and discuss the relevance of the conditions that are on the list and whether any others should be added. So it gets refreshed on a, on a regular basis. The stallion inspections have been going on much, much longer than that, maybe with different focuses on them, but always with the same idea to pass horses that are clinically sound. Assumedly, in those early years, we were seeing the whole gamut of horses of every age, but would I be right in assuming that these days 
it's the majority, it's young produced stallions that are coming through for inspection. No, there's a balance. Um, there is, um, yes, there obviously is probably the biggest percentage are three and four year old horses. But as you say, that there are horses that have retired from competition that are being approved. Um, there are horses that are coming in from other countries having had a very successful competition record and they're seeking approval for the Irish stud book. So all sorts. I mean, some of these horses that come for approval could be 14 or 15 years of age, may have been successful sires in other jurisdictions. And Hugh, in the time you've been involved, has there been a clear increase in the quality of the horses being presented for inspection? Oh, very much so. At the end of the day, it's not a cheap procedure to prepare a horse and bring it for a stallion inspection and go through all the stages. You know, it's, it's quite an expensive uh, operation. And I think as this modern stallion inspection system is, is now well understood and people know what the uh, inspection panel are looking for in the time that i've been involved i would notice that there are the horses are of a much more level standard and they're much more likely to be passing than you know i, I remember the first years that, that i did this there could have been 130 140 horses presented for inspection and maybe only three or four pass you know that that day has changed now the, the quality is much better across the board and the data and information coming out of the stallion inspection process must be useful now for the breeders because we're creating a, a known veterinary status for the sires in the stud book and giving information about some of those hereditary aspects like OCD bone chips or warm blood fragile foal syndrome. And I know Horse Sport Ireland have just launched a big new testing program on that. So, yes, they are relevant. So I get a bit old fashioned in this, but OK, those are pretty relevant. It is good to know that you are not producing the most beautiful young horses in the country to find that they all fail the vet because they've got OCD chips. At least if you have that information before you start, you can make a judgment call on it, but that is quite important. The other thing that is, for me, important is wind issues. And it is important that a stallion has got a good, clear wind, that he does not have a laryngeal neuropathy, that he's not a whistler or a roarer, and that his larynx is not in any way paralysed or semi-paralysed, because that is very much hereditary. And whilst there are horses with wind problems that can go and win major events, there's a lot of horses actually show jumping that can perform at the highest level with the wind issues. But when you're producing a nice young horse at the start of his career and he's a whistler or a roarer, that will have a huge effect on his monetary value. So wind is a big thing as well. But then to move on from that, what you breed from is what you get. Black cat, black kitten. And so many people choose and select their stallions off a page a beautifully put together promotional page or a video of them popping around a track somewhere and what they really should be doing is going and looking at the horse and looking at his conformation is he long backed is he short backed has he got 
good hawks? Have they got uh, straight hawks? Others at rocks like will he suit my mare? There's very little of that goes on nowadays, and that will have a huge effect on the offspring that you produce. So I still am very, very keen that when you are selecting your sire for your mare, that you not only do you go for the one that has the, the most scintillating performance and all the rest of it, but you go with one that will actually suit your mare. And the other thing is blood. You know, has it got enough blood for your mare? Has it got too much blood? Too little? Uh, these are things that seem to get passed over by many, many breeders. So, but for me, they're very important. And you touched on it there, Hugh, but there's no denying the importance of the mare in all this as well. Well, obviously, if you breed from a mare that has got a wind issue, you have a really good chance that your offspring will also have wind issues. Not always. Sometimes they jump a generation, but it's certainly far from ideal. If you breed from a mare that's got upright clubby feet, you will probably produce young stock that will have upright clubby feet. So, yeah, have a good critical look at your own mare first. Has she got good confirmation? Is she a good straight mover? And apply that to what you think you want to breed. A lot of people do breed for emotional reasons that it's the mare they competed, it's a mare they're not going to sell, it's part of the family. And okay, so you might start off with with a mare that isn't maybe eminently suitable for breeding, but with a bit of wise stallion choice, you can maybe ameliorate some of the defects that your own mare has. Uh, So, yeah, when you're asking what should you do, the first thing I would do is have a really hard, cold look at the animal you are intending to breed from and what her good points are, what her bad points are and how you can improve upon them with the the sire that you choose. Reading an article the the other day about someone who was breeding and they they bred three times from the, the same stallion and they got three completely different types of horses each time. Part of it quite often is just the luck and the the things that happened along the way to, to produce her as she was. So when she breeds an ugly duckling, that is maybe where it ends. You may just end up with an ugly duckling or you could be lucky enough to have a, another international animal. So I've taken the leap and I've bred a nice horse that I think can go far in one of our high performance disciplines. How do I keep my vet bills low while I'm producing this young horse? So the big thing with with baby horses is their muscles are soft, their ligaments are soft. So you've got to be very careful at how much work you actually give them. And I think you go go back to the the old basics. Really all that you want to, to teach or encourage a young horse to do is go forward in a straight line and and with straightness and correctness. And if you can teach them that, then as they start to physically mature, you can start to bring in, you can start to introduce the technicalities. But it is a big issue. If if not in the field, at least the, the sort of preparatory work they should be doing should be, as I say, very, very basic stuff learning to go forward straight, learning to understand the aid in a very basic way. It is also an issue, I do think, with the young horse class. They're, they're a great spectacle and they're a great spectacle to watch at, at the like of the RDS. But what is being asked of those horses is, is fairly intensive. It's not what they're being asked to do in the competition. 
it is the work that needs to be put into them to be able to perform in those competitions that can leave its mark on the joints and ligaments and so on as, as the horse goes on through life. Hugh, the lure of the money or the market at the very top of any of our high-performance disciplines must be very difficult to ignore when you're thinking about slowly and beautifully producing your young horse. What's been your experience, for instance, in eventing? Producing young horses, producing young event horses, for instance, the best event horses very often are completely cast by as foals and yearlings and three-year-olds. Nobody would look at them. They look like the ugly duckling in the corner. They don't have the power and presence and movement of that continentally bred dressage horse or young jumper. And so in the production of, of event horses, I think it's, it's a much slower, more intuitive process. And it takes time. I remember years and years ago actually judging one of those competitions at Dolan's Town and there was a lovely little brown mare and she's, she was a lovely loose step and there was a nice mare. She didn't win. She didn't come anywhere near winning that day but she has been competing at uh, what is now five-star level for the last two or three years. She made it all the way through the grades a little bit slower than the rest. And there's also that really important time post-weaning up to the start of production with a young horse about how we care for it then. What's your advice for that time of its life? The traditional way is that young horses went out to the field and if the weather was bad, they stayed in the field probably as much as anything else because there was nowhere else really to put them. But now we've all become so professional and and commercial in, in producing horses where maybe years ago there would have been one or two or half a dozen horses. Now the producers of young horses will have 20 horses or maybe even 40 or 50 horses. So they have all sorts of wonderful barns and loose houses. But that doesn't necessarily mean it. that's the best place for them to develop, develop muscle and develop ligaments and joints and so forth. Hugh, buyers today have become so discerning, but they're not just looking for that high-performance talent and ability. They're also looking for those clean x-rays, those clean limbs that are going to sail through a pre-purchase veterinary procedure. What advice do we have about that? And I suppose in particular, one of the factors that comes up again and again is those chips. In the case of chips, these famous chips that we all talk about, which are basically OCD fragments, and there are several influencing factors as, as to why horses acquire these OCD chips. And yes, management, nutrition, uh, housing, all that sort of thing are thought to be involved. But the, obviously there is a big hereditary component to them as well. I think we need to be careful that when the producer is selling a young horse, obviously it has to pass its clinical veterinary examination that's fine that's the five stage examination but the big issue then in modern horse sales are these x-rays every horse that's of any sort of monetary value at all will have to be produced with a set of x-rays Hugh we spoke a little bit about rushing a young horse or overproducing a young horse how does that come through in a pre-purchase examination? The young horses that get overproduced a lot of the issues that those horses 
will have in later life actually at that at that stage will not show up in either a clinical form i.e. in lameness or unlevelness or whatever uh, nor will they particularly show up on x-rays a lot of them are soft tissue related basically are unlikely to be obvious at um, pre-sales bettings at that stage strangely enough so what's to be done about our ocd chips chips you mentioned chips and uh, how does a producer avoid falling into the to the trap of having his lovely young horse failed at a vetting because it has chips in its stifles, its hocks, its fetlocks, wherever. The single biggest contributor to chips is the hereditary component from either the mare or the sire. And if you are using a fabulous sire that is a great performer himself and is producing loads of good performers, has a propensity to breed horses with chips, you will be sure that your young horse has got an increased chance of having some form of OCD in some of his joints. That's the single biggest thing that you can look at to try and avoid getting chips. Try and avoid using the, the sires that have a likelihood of throwing chips. And there are some of our top sires, unfortunately, have more than their fair share of offspring with OCD fragments. And Hugh, as a producer, is there anything I can do? A, a big thing nowadays is for a lot of producers to have their young horses x-rayed as they enter their three-year-old year. And if they do have OCD fragments, quite a few of them get them surgically removed. Mm. And uh, so they do have a clean set of x-rays thereafter. Some of them are removable easily and safely, and then there are others which, for one reason or another, are not. So if I'm coming to buy a horse and I find that it has OCD chips, but perhaps they're inherited and they're inherited from a great high-performance bloodline, how much do I really need to worry? A lot of these OCD fragments, these chips, are fairly benign. They have a very low instance of causing problems, causing lameness. And it's very dependent on their position and their size so that you will find some of these sitting at the top of the joint capsule in a fetlock joint and they probably never in the horse's life will they ever affect his, his soundness. But sometimes if you get one stuck in a poor position, let's say in a pedal bone in the coffin joint, then that can wear away and erode the cartilage and within a number of years can actually be a clinical problem. Same in, in the hocks and the, and the stifles. You can have chips that sit there quite benignly for maybe several years and then may displace or may eventually erode the cartilage in the joint and bang, suddenly you've got a clinical problem. Although there is always the exception to that and I have seen x-rays of horses that have galloped around badminton four and five times and they have huge chips in various joints and, and uh, it has never uh, caused them any, any issue. So, But I think when any potential purchaser is buying a young horse, particularly one that has got potential and, the, and that they are kind of looking towards a big future with, it isn't just the purchase price of the animal, it's the money that they will invest along the way over the years to produce that animal up through the grades that they look at. And if the animal has got an issue that even 
carries a very slight risk of being of relevance, then they tend to steer away. And, and you can see you can see their point from that point of view as well. Hugh, with your extensive experience in eventing, I just thought I'd ask you this. I think when somebody breeds a horse and it's very clearly a show jumper or very clearly a dressage horse, that's easy. And sometimes the others get lumped into being eventers. But actually in the modern high-performance eventing sport, that's not really fair on the young horse to try and send it that way because there's something very particular about eventers as well. They're not just the others. That's absolutely right. I mean, the event horse needs to be an athlete that can actually gallop as well as perform well in the other disciplines. And whilst in modern eventing, the dressage and the show jumping are levels above what they might have been 20 or 30 years ago, they still are well shy of what's required in international dressage and international show jumping. So they, the event horse still is really a jack of all trades and must have the physique to be able to gallop along with these other abilities and, and as you say, have the heart. And nowadays the industry, the market's incredibly international and we have buyers and their veterinary surgeons coming from all over the world to assess purchases. How does all that balance up? There are certain nuances in different countries as to what is expected out of veterinary and what's expected with soundness. There are certain countries in Europe that it's unheard of to check a horse's wind out of veterinary, but they would focus very severely on flexion tests and x-rays. In England, it's nearly de rigueur to have the animal ridden as part of the pre-purchase, whereas in Ireland, most of the continental countries and America, ridden examinations are not so common. Horse sport is such an international sport nowadays that what passes in one country tends to pass in another country, and there's, there's a lot of there's a lot of link up between the, the different countries. I find that particularly in, in sets of radiographs, an Italian vet pass or fail will have the same result in America or Canada or Holland or wherever. And a lot of that's to do with competitors competing all over the world, but also the vets go to conferences, mingle, have friends in all the different countries and, you know, thoughts and processes are shared between us. And you, when you're acting in that capacity on behalf of a buyer, how do you formulate your advice? What do you consider to be important? And how do your buyers in the main take that advice within their whole decision making? What I try to do anyway as a veterinary surgeon is to identify as many relevant findings and pass those on to prospective purchaser. In days gone by, a horse passed or failed a betting. It isn't like that anymore. A horse with a small splint might not pass to go show waving, but will pass to go and win the next goal. A horse that makes an inspiratory whistle and has got a degree of laryngeal paralysis could still be worth hundreds of thousands to go show jumping, but isn't worth buttons to go eventing. And different people have different perspectives and I talk to a lot of people that have things like the uh, course bridge go for gold sale and, you know, every, every buyer is different. People come to me and, and their opening gambit is, I'm very risk averse. And I think, right, okay, well, you're probably in the wrong game if that's <laughs> you're going to be your opening statement. But, you know, people maybe have had very bad luck, for instance, with horses with spavins, so they're going to be particularly 
careful that they don't get caught again. Other people have particular bad luck with feet problems, so they're going to be very specific about the horse's feet and conformation and backs and, you know, so on and so forth. People draw on their own experiences in life as, as to what they particularly want. And I think the sellers have to understand that, that they may have a lovely horse that they think anyone would want, but there may be specific buyers who, who won't want it for particular reasons, and yet someone else will. And finally, as you've got that almost unique look at the industry from breeding right through to the very top of the high-performance structure, what's your assessment of the Irish sport horse industry today? Something I hear said so often now is, oh, you couldn't find a good horse in the country now. And in actual fact, it is the complete opposite. We're breeding a huge number of good horses. The problem is the demand for them is huge. And when you think back, you know, at any of the events, there might have been 30 or 40 or 50 horses competing. Now, every single event, there could be 300 competing. There will be shows all over the country where there will be hundreds of horses competing. The number of horses that are competing and competing at a level way ahead of where they were 30 years ago is immense. And the demand for good horses is immense. You can easily name quite a number of agents who travel the country picking up the nice young horses to produce them for the international market. And there's huge demand and there's huge production of nice horses. It's just that we need to continuously keep the numbers high and keep the quality high. Yeah, there's a massive future for it all, but it's, it's just... And I, and I think that the stallion inspections and the mare scheme and, and the HSI classes and things, I think all these things help identify good bloodlines. And we're getting to a stage now where sport horses actually can have nearly like a pedigree page similar to the racing industry. So I think all that, that bodes very well for the future. Hugh Sufferin, veterinary consultant for Horsesport Island Breeding Programmes. Thank you very much. It's been great to learn a little bit more about these breeding issues and in particular how they and production can affect the saleability of our young stock as well as understand a little bit more about the management of our high-performance horses. There is, as ever, a huge amount of advice and information on the HSI website at horsesportisland.ie including the launch of the Warm Blood Fragile Fold Testing Scheme. And there continues to be news and updates on the current COVID-19 guidance and details of the financial support available. So thanks for joining me, John Kyle, and I look forward to talking to you again on the next Horse Sport Ireland podcast.